Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Book three of Lucretius's poem, The Nature of Things, or The Nature of the Universe, depending on how you want to translate it, is discussing the human mind, what it is that is distinctive to us and what it is that we also share with the other animate, the other animal things. And there's two terms that are going to be used, not synonymously, but in conjunction with each other quite a bit. Both of them have the same stem. There's animus and then there's anima. And we typically translate animus as mind, or we can also translate it as intellect. Then there's anima, which sometimes gets translated as soul, but for the purposes of discussion here, we're going to follow the typical translation as spirit. And these, according to Lucretius, are interconnected with each other and with the human body. So he's very keen to spell out for us what kind of things these actually are. And he begins by talking about the mind. He says, first, I maintain that the mind, which we often call the intellect, interestingly, the word that we're translating there as intellect is mens, which is close to mind in English. This is our intellectual capacity, our powers. He calls it the seat of the guidance and control of life. So the thing that's running the show, so to speak. And then he says, this is a part of the human being. It's not the entirety of the human being, as some people would say. It's not something foreign to the human being. It is a part, he says, no less than hand or foot or eyes are parts of a whole living creature. And he goes on a little bit further down the line and talks more about this dominant force that the the intellect or the mind is. He calls it the head and the dominant force in the whole body, being that guiding principle, which we term the mind or intellect. The mind or intellect, if it's doing its job right, will actually be running the show. There's probably a lot of thought processes as well going on below the level of our consciousness that are playing an important role as well. And he tells us that it is lodged within the chest. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing to point out because we late moderns tend to associate the mind primarily with the brain, which we know is located up here in our our head. And, you know, you might say, well, why would it be located in the breast? Well, that was a common place for the ancient Greeks to think of the, the mind, those capacities being located in. Some commentators point out that the argument here that he's providing doesn't necessarily get us the entirety of the mind or intellect being located in the chest. It could also be diffused through the body, but certainly that's where the emotions are taking place. And he says, here's the place where fear and alarm 
warm pulsate, here is felt the caressing touch of joy. Here then is the seat of intellect and mind, right? So the intellect or mind is in a particular area. I mean, it's kind of able to move around a bit as we can see, but that's, that's quite important. And so we're going to see that there's also another thing that he brings up, the anima. He says, you must understand there's also a vital spirit in our limbs and the body does not derive its sentience from any harmony. He's concerned to like combat that error, which we'll talk about elsewhere. And then he tells us that the mind and the spirit are interconnected, conjuncta, right? Sometimes he'll actually use metaphors with the mind, spirit, and body of a marriage, right? And so they are, they're intertwined is another way, or entangled, you could say, with each other. And the anima, unlike the intellect or the mind, is actually spread throughout the entirety of the body, but the parts where it's bringing itself into contact with the intellect, it's going to be interconnected, interfused with it. And as he says, they form a single, some translations say substance, nature is a little bit closer to the original Latin text, una natura, right? So a single thing throughout all of our body. And, uh, you know, he goes on talking about this. These are interconnected with the body. And he says that when we look at a person, when our head or our eye suffers from an attack of pain, our whole body does not share in its aching, just so the mind some, sometimes suffers by itself or jumps for joy when the rest of the spirit is not stirred by any impulse. But when the mind is upset by some more overwhelming fear, we see the spirit in every limb upset in sympathy, sweat, and pallor, the whiteness, right? Break out over the body, speech grows inarticulate, the voice fails, the eyes grow dim, the ears buzz, the limbs totter. Often we see men actually drop down because of the terror that has gripped their minds, right? I'm pointing at my head, but it really should be pointing at the chest. So he says, hence you may readily infer a connection between the mind and the spirit, which when shaken by the impact of the mind, immediately jostles and propels the body. Now, how could this, in fact, be the case? Lucretius wants to say that shows us that the, the mind and the vital spirit that are interconnected with each other, like the body, are matter. They are material because otherwise there's no way for them to interact with the body itself and produce all of these interesting effects that we see that terror or fear can in fact induce in a person. So he says that the same reasoning proves that the mind and spirit are both composed of matter. Why? We see them propelling the limbs, rousing the body from sleep, changing the expression of the face, guiding and steering the whole person activities that clearly involve touch as touch in turn involves matter. So he says, how can we deny this material nature then? You see the mind sharing in the body's experiences and sympathizing with it. And then he's got a kind of a gruesome example here. When the nerve wracking impact of a spear lays bare bones and sinews, even if it does not penetrate to the seat of life, there ensues faintness and a falling towards the ground and on the ground, a turmoil in the mind and an intermittent faltering impulse to stand up again. The substance of the mind must therefore be material, 
Why? Because it suffers the impact of material weapons. So we could generalize this. Since we can, for pleasure, pain, or whatever else we want to say, be affected by external things that bear upon our body, and we feel it not just in our body, but also in the vital spirit and the mind, the vital spirit of the mind must be material. So if they are material from an Epicurean point of view, remember Lucretius belongs to that at school, there is going to be a set of atoms or particles that both of these interconnected things are made of. So what kind of matter is it? He says, mind and spirit are a very fine texture, right? And composed of exceptionally minute particles. And he says, you can infer this from the following facts. Nothing happens as quickly as the mind represents and sketches the happening to itself. Therefore, the mind sets into itself a motion more swiftly than any of those things whose substance is visible to our eyes. What is so mobile, what is so movable, right, must consist of exceptionally spherical and minute atoms. And so he brings up some examples here, like water flows quite easily as opposed to honey. Why is that? Well, the water particles are rounder and smaller than the honey particles, which are more vicious, right? They stick to each other. They don't roll as well, right? He's got another great example of poppy seeds. If you've ever seen poppy seeds or worked with it, you got to be kind of careful, especially if there's a wind because it just blow it away, right? And they're tiny and they're very light. And so you got to be kind of on your guard not to lose them. Well, that's what the intellect and the vital spirit are like. They're made of tiny, tiny particles. And so they move around very simply, right? He says, the substance of the mind is extraordinarily mobile. And then he says, here's a further indication how flimsy is the texture of the vital spirit in how small a space it could be contained. At the instant when a person is mastered by the calm of death and forsaken by mind and spirit, you cannot tell either by sight or by weight that any part of the whole has been filched away from the body. The things that compose the mind and the spirit are so tiny that we, we can't even see them. Whereas like the, the other stuff that's, you know, our body itself, much larger particles. And interestingly, you know, there were, there were experiments uh, weighing dead people shortly after they died to like try to figure out, you know, was there any loss in material substance? Lucretius would say, no, of course you won't be able to notice any, although there'll be like an infinitesimal amount. So this is what, according to Lucretius, our minds and spirits actually are. They're material things, composites, you could say, of many, many, many fine atoms that are spread throughout and interconnected, interlocked, you might even say, with our much grosser and visible and detectable bodies. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.